0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: Stage here for a, a minute, and while I do, I'd like you to do something for me, Oops. and ask yourself, don't turn and ask anybody else, how was your week? I didn't ask you to respond, I asked you to ask yourself, but good, I'm glad you're already tracking with me. The reason I ask is because I knew we were having the choir sing that song, In Christ Alone, which is one of my favorite modern day hymns that we have. And also the song before spoke and sang of the powerful, wonderful, steadfast love of the Lord that never fails, never gives up, and never runs out on us. So here's my question, and I'm going to ask it again now that you can see my eyeballs. In light of the fact that we can stand firm on Christ no matter what the world brings, how was your week? Again, think about it. Did we stand on Christ our solid rock? Or, as let's be honest with ourselves, were we much more likely to worry, stress, get concerned and complain about all the different things that go on when trials come? And when things go well, we think of what a great job we're doing. Today, as you can see on the screen... The title of our message is out of Hosea 11, Kids, Life's Great Restoration Project. Now, if you look at the dynamics of our church, many of you have children of your own. Some of you are young adults uh, or teenagers or older children, whichever term you prefer to call yourself these days. Uh, Many of you work in the educational sector where your job is shaping young lives and in an ideal world coming along parents that are helping you in that journey or you're assisting parents and here at the church you're assisting uh, us in the children's ministry to do that job. But if we back up and we think about the history of God's people, we go all the way back to the Old Testament, long before Hosea prophesied in 700 B.C., And we look at the fact that God called his people, as only a father could, out of slavery miraculously. Took Pharaoh ten tries to hear what was really happening, right? Remember that? The plagues came and eventually after the Passover, God's people were freed. And with that great miracle from then on, the Israelites... The Hebrews, whatever name you want to give them, always followed God and trusted him because of his great and powerful might, right? They stood firm on God, right? No, they did not. It makes me think that God might have felt something like this.
2: All three of my kids are mad at me right now for like completely different, unrelated reasons. All three are mad at me right now. For those of you who struggle with math, that means that 100% of my children are angry with me right now. And you know what? I don't care. I don't care. You know why? Because I am not their buddy. I am their parent. They are angry at me because I parented them. My number one job as their parent is to love them. And loving them does not mean making sure they're always happy and get every single little thing they want. Loving them means raising them into healthy, decent, human beings who I would actually wanna hang out with someday. That's what loving them means. Until my kids are adults, I am not their friend, we are not on the same level, I'm the authority, my child's well-being is more important to me than my child's opinion of me. My job is not to be liked by my kid, and I don't take it personally when my kid doesn't like me. And honestly, if my kids like me 100% of the time, I'm probably failing at parenting. Strikes
1: a chord, doesn't it? (laughs) Because what if we put ourselves, now I'm not saying she is God. Please don't take this metaphor beyond what it's meant to be. She is not God, but she gets something that the vast majority of of us in Christ forget. God's goal is our well being, and the best place for us to be is in His loving arms. And He will do whatever it takes to draw us back to Himself because He loves us so much that in freedom, He set us free from the slavery of the Egyptians. He offered us freedom from the slavery of sin. But he gives us the choice to follow him. He gives us the choice to go the right way or to make our own way. Our text, if you would open your Bibles, comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Not Hebrews, Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. And I'm going to read it out to you. And I'd like you just to, if you've got any form of Bible, digital, uh, electronic, Physical, uh, we love those. Or if you've printed it out so your eyeballs can see it like mine today, I'd like you to read along with me as you listen and you think about the heart of a parent and the response of a child that shows forth in verses 1 through 11 of Hebrews, Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. We've heard that somewhere in Luke. But the more they were, or Matthew, I mean, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize it was I who healed them. (laughs) I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love, To them, I was like the one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? The answer is yes, exile is coming. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. And there's this proverbial but in verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboyim? And those are areas around Sodom and Gomorrah that were ultimately destroyed. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west." They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God, I thank you for the power of this sermon that Hosea was given in chapter 11 of your words to us. We know we have taxed your love as our heavenly Father so many times. But God, today, teach us shape us, inform us into kids after your own heart, kids that bring others into the fold, kids that show there's a great way to live and trusting our Father is that way. Lord, may my words be few and yours pierce straight to our heart today. Amen. So as I said already, uh, parenting is hard. On May 20th, 2005, I grabbed a car seat, hadn't practiced with it nearly enough, and tried to figure out how to put it in the back of a Chevy Malibu car. It's a Chevrolet. I don't have those here because, well, it's American, and American cars, you know, whatever. And out came this little bundle that we had so bundled up that she couldn't possibly have moved. And we got home and a woman named Susan was there waiting because she was going to stay with us as we got used to having a child in our home for the first time. And oh my goodness, were we terrified. And that terror only rose another level higher when she saw our dog and she said, you have to be careful with dogs. Sometimes they'll eat your kids' heads. (laughs) Mental note, not the best first thing to tell new parents. So just keep that in the back of your minds. And our dog, Denali, did not eat Isabella. In fact, she loved her (laughs) and protected her fiercely if anyone came at that baby that Denali did not know or trust for those few weeks that we had. But the entire world and how we saw everything changed when we had responsibility for another life. Now, I'm not saying parents are the only one that can understand that concept, but there is a powerful connection between a child and their parents that God has given us. So can you imagine the feeling of betrayal when God, who has done so much for his people, when he has protected and cared for and, pre- and watched over and provided for, time and again, And yet his people keep complaining and running away and chasing newer and better in their minds, influencers in their life. When he provides miraculously manna out of the dust of the ground, well, it's not enough. So then he gives them meat and well, they get tired of that. Then they're thirsty and they strike, the, or they strike a rock instead of speaking to it, and that's not enough. He parts seas, he crosses rivers, all of these things, and it's not enough. Some of you as parents feel similar. You do everything for your kid. You show them the right way to go, and yet, it's not fair. Why don't you understand me? You fill in the blank. It comes time and time again. But we look at Hosea chapter 11, and we see this picture of God that we often skim right by in our Bibles. We know that uh, God in three persons starts with, in our understanding, in the church history, we've always taught that the Trinity starts with God the Father, right? Yeah, a couple of you are still awake. Good. Now, what that means is that we understand, at least intellectually, that God is seen as a father figure. But I've got to ask, how often do we understand and, and contemplate what it means that God allows himself to be identified as father so that we can understand a little bit of his nature? Because if I ask you to expound or explain the fatherhood of God, I suspect most of us would fall short. We would say, well, you know, he would tell us what to do and he cares for us, right? Yeah. So let's look closely at Hosea chapter 11 and see what we find out about God, our Father. First off, it was I. He reminds us right away that A godly father is one that watches over and works for the good of his people. Whether they respond or not, God is still at work. You understand that concept? God's love isn't dependent upon our performance. Now, he allows us to live with the consequences of our choices, and that's a wonderful thing about him giving us free choice, free will. It's painful at times, but that's what we talked about the last couple weeks. The discipline of God says that he allows us to live with the consequences of our action, but he constantly, relentlessly invites us home. And here he's saying it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. We have three young children in our church right now that are all roughly the same age. They're within, I think, about four or five months of each other. And it's been fun to watch these three kids learn to walk because they've all hit it within a couple months of each other. And they, they start and they wobble around and, and mom and dad are watching for that first real step and you see it and you know then you get a shove here and there and, and it's so exciting to see that kid walk, right? And you're so proud, but they're not running yet. They're not there. They're not fully on the journey. They're not mature, They're not out racing in marathons like we talked about last week. They are just learning to walk and they need their father to guide them. They need their father to show them there are right ways to walk and there are wrong ways to walk. There are right things to climb up and wrong things to climb up. And God is saying it was I who did that for the people of Israel, for the people of Ephraim. It was me. I am a personal God. I came down and got into life with my people. And I care intimately about them. I was the one that fathered them. I taught them to walk. I led them with cords of human kindness. What's that mean? It means that he's patient that he's just, that he understands what Paul would write about almost a 1,000 years later, roughly 800 years later, or whoever wrote Hebrews, that it's your kindness that leads us to compassion and leads us to, not compassion, repentance. And God's kindness would draw the people back to him even when they didn't deserve it. They would realize we have turned against you and God was still kind. And we're gonna break these down in a moment. But then to them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. There's two more pictures there. The first is lifted a little child to the cheek. A parent does that. They want to feel the skin of that newborn baby close to them, right? You love the smell of the baby. You love the touch of the baby, the soft skin of the baby, the everything of that baby. And you want that baby to know it is loved and it is yours, right? And you don't want anything to cause doubt in that baby's mind that you are their parent. Raising it to the cheek tenderly and lovingly, not to crush the baby but to show its love. And then I bent down to feed them. I'm their provider. I am their caregiver. I am the one to take care of my family. He's not running away from responsibility. If you think of it a different way, Cassie Carstens, uh, the guy, the founder of the World Needs a Father movement, this is a primer on that, he would say that when you look at these statements that God has established authority over his people. I taught Ephraim to walk. I showed them how to walk and the right way to go. He is establishing his authority over his people. I am their father. I am their God. Obey me. We're supposed to show people the same as followers of Jesus, as a royal priesthood. That's our job, to show people there is a moral authority to follow and that it's God. We also see there that when God led them up to his cheek and he bends down to feed them, what he's doing is he's conferring identity. They're my kids. I will look after my children. I will look after my people. He wants them to know that they are his. How powerful a message for a people that continually run away from God. Isn't that amazing that God would remind time and again, you are my people. I don't like your actions, but I'm still going to show you that there's a way back. He also provides security. That same verse, I held them to my cheek. They're mine. I held them tight. They are secure in the arms of the Father. And then finally, he affirms potential. I led them with cords of human kindness. I showed them kindness. The the inference, inference here is that they should show the world the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Biblical theology says we have to understand the message of the Bible from the beginning to the end, and we know that God's kindness much more than throwing rocks at people, it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. People need to be affirmed that they are loved, they are valued, and they are cared for by a God that created them. But here's the rub. Many of you hear the word, God, our Father, and you think back to your own life, and you didn't have particularly good fathers. And that could mean all sorts of things. And for the next few minutes, every dad or previous dad or wannabe dad, this is not me trying to make you feel terrible about your job or about your performance. This is about the reality of us living in a broken world and the opportunity we have to grow and show people a little bit of the heavenly father. Okay? But statistics tell me, from sociology studies all over the world, a few things. And I'm not going to go into all the numbers because I would bore you uh, tremendously. But time and again, a few things happen. One, uh, even TV shows these days show us that dads tend to be absent, even if they're in the same room. Watch just about any show. Dad is kind of the goofy, shows up occasionally, then disappears, and it's mom that does all the hard work. That's the cultural image we live with today. Now, there is at least one show I've seen that uh, presents a different image of that, and it's called This Is Us. And it's the most painful show on television for all sorts of reasons. I watched the first episode the other day, and every episode apparently you cry. I don't know why people make this kind of television. But in that, there is a dad that is, they go through each level of conflict and each level of struggle, they are in it together as husband and wife. But many of you didn't experience that as you grew up. Your father wasn't around. Maybe your father passed away when you were early. Maybe your dad worked such long hours you never saw him that he felt the need to provide for his family in such a way, but you lost out on the relationship. And that creates a wound, and it creates a pain. And somewhere over time, it ended up, whether you realized it or not, inviting you to turn from either your earthly father or your heavenly father, or both. Now, it's not just because dad wasn't around that you did these things, but often we see psychologically that the wounds of a father sting deeply than any, more deeply than anything else. That's the reality we live in because we are made in the very image of God. And if we're made in the image of God, we long to be accepted by our Heavenly Father. And an image we have of Him in our minds and how we make connections is our earthly fathers. And if our earthly fathers have wounded us, then our Heavenly Father cannot be trusted. Therefore, I will go my own way. Did you follow that train of thought? I have heard it time and time again. And let me repeat how it goes. We were created in the image of God. Everybody agrees with me on that point. I'm assuming that in a church setting we're going to agree with that. Second, we then, because of that, affirm that God is our Father, our Heavenly Father, not the Luke Skywalker, I am your Father, Darth Vader way. I haven't made a Star Wars reference in a while, so it was time but in the much more holy creator God way, he is our father and he cares deeply for us. However, your earthly father somewhere along the line dropped the ball. That's an idiom meanings, failed you, disappointed you, let you down, did not parent like the mean mom. That's her YouTube channel name, Mean Mom. And they did not parent the way that you needed at that time. And that left a hole, that left a wound that you translated to how you understand God. Because if your heavenly father is anything like your earthly father, he is not to be trusted. Therefore, as a child, you would rebel. That leads us to verse 7. My people, you could replace people there with children. God is speaking about his children the people of Israel. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. I'm not going to praise them just because out of their mouth they say, I love you, Lord. When all of their actions point to something completely different. Every parent that has ever lived from the very beginning of time has told their kid, I told you, and finish the sentence. You might have spoken it in a different language, but it has happened. And yet, does the child obey? No. Sometimes they do, and it's this wonderful moment of, oh! but there's also deep anguish and pain when the child from the youngest of ages goes, they hear you say, go this way, and they go this way. Or when they get to their teen years, and when I worked with teenagers I would listen time and again. They don't understand. Or the one that always struck a note with me, they don't have time to listen to me. They're too busy telling me what to do. Interestingly, that's not the picture of God that God is giving us in Hosea 11. He's not saying, I don't have time for you. He's saying, I created you. It was my kindness that led you the right way. I am the one that's guiding and directing your path. I taught you to walk. I'm the one kissing you on the cheek and feeding you, yet you continue to rebel. You continue to think that your ways are better than my ways. Romans tells us that humanity tends to exchange the truth of God for a lie. The truth of God was right before the Israelite people, the northern kingdom that Hosea was talking to. And yet, God was honest. My people are going to rebel. And interestingly, as you read the the full chapter, you see that in fact they will rebel. They have rebelled. They will continue to rebel. And God will send them into exile. This does not have an immediate happy ending. This is a part of understanding the Father of God that we must pause and grasp. It's why I've spent two weeks talking about God's loving justice and discipline, and I'm going to hit on it again a third week. Actions have consequences. Out of God's great love for his people, he taught them to walk, he showed them the way to go, but he did not make them robots. He gave them choice. And they would tend to want to blame God for the exile that was coming. But it was not God that chose to run away from a father that would kiss their cheek and provide for them and let them be light into all the world to bring hope into a broken world. It was them that pushed God out. It was them that said, we are in the kind of world that Oxford Dictionaries told us was a post-truth world. Last year, the word of the year, 2016, was post-truth. The very idea screams in the face of everything that we as Christ followers know to be true. We live in an era of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father, except through me, Jesus Christ, his son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But this word post-truth is all the thing, because listen to what Oxford Dictionary, once it's in the Oxford Dictionary, it's supposed to be black and white, irrevocably true. In other words, which the great thing about this, this is an absolute definition saying that there are no absolutes. An adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, if I want to get your attention, I can't just tell you what's right or wrong. I have to make sure you care about it from your emotional state. And it has to be right for you. You see what that's telling us? That's telling us what the screen before says. Oops. That kids rebel, that they don't have to listen to truth anymore. Truth is gone because we have to respond to what feels right to you and I, because we live in an era of post truth society. Isn't that a relief? Isn't that great? Well, let's chase a a rabbit for a moment. You know what that means? It's when a speaker gets up and goes off topic. I'm actually not going off topic. This is in my notes. But if we all live as post-truth Christians, which you'll find many, in the digital world, we see all sorts of compromises coming more and more out of Christian circles. But here's the thing. If every one of us lives right now as a post-truth Christian, and we all do what feels right to us, and makes us feel good about us, that's great, right? We all want to feel good, right? You with me? You know there's something coming, so you're afraid to say you want to feel good, because you don't want to admit that, because you know I'm about to say something else. But here's the thing, what if what feels good for you infringes upon what feels good for someone else? What then do you do? Well, you have a problem. And it's decided all sorts of different ways. And societal norms today, specifically in the first world that we find ourselves living in for the most part, tend to separate and not acknowledge the differences of others. Or we say, if you don't agree with my interpretation of what's right for me, then you are intolerant. Therefore, you are a failure, and I am spewing out my my subjective truth into your world. So I am telling you that if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. And we've come back to saying there is truth. It's just my truth is the most important in the room. You see how dangerous that is? There are roughly 190 people sitting right here. That is 190 different versions of truth. And you're all in different stages of life, right? Different backgrounds, different ages, different socioeconomic standards. So each of you then would interpret truth by what feels good to you in your current situation. And if it doesn't feel good to you, you're not going to do it. But here's the thing. God says there is truth. And it's me. And I'm calling you to a love that lasts forever. I'm calling you to a love that cannot be questioned. That has never changed and never will change. I met with a friend yesterday and I hadn't seen him in about six months. And that friend told me, Oh, did you know that my wife and I separated? And I said, No, but I kind of thought so because you hadn't talked about her in a while uh, in our text messages. And he said, Yeah, but I'm fine with it. We tried. And that was it. There was no commitment, there was no covenant. And that broke my heart because we've lost sight of the value of true relationships. And that starts with the truth of God. And we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie that says, if it doesn't feel good, I'm not going to bother doing it. And so we've moved on to a post-truth society. But there's got to be help and hope, sorry. Because we've got to respond. God doesn't relent. If you look at verses 8 and 9, you get this picture God sees that his children yet again are defining their own truth they're saying Baal worship is more important than him worship that's what's going on I don't want us to get too far away from the text and start applying it just to ourselves because we have to understand the passage in its context first they the people of Israel had said that they want to be more like Babylon and Assyria they want to be more like the successful people around them and those people are worthy to be trusted and I'm going to pay them to protect me rather than trusting God to protect and provide. But remember what God has already said in the first couple of verses of, Hebrews, of Hosea 11? That it was I that taught you to walk. It was I who kissed you on the cheek. It was I who fed you. It was I who treated you with kindness. And I promise you, look at chapters 5 through 9, and you will see time and again that Assyria will hurt you, that Babylon will enslave you, that these people are not seeking your best interests. God is. And he's calling them back. You don't have it on a slide Oh, there it is. You do. Sorry, I got him out of order. His love never fails. Listen to what he says. How can I give you up? You run away. I chase you. My heart is changed within me. Interestingly, and it's a really hard thing for scholars to know what to do with uh, this, this middle part of verse eight, because the word there in Hebrew means, "I repented." How does God repent? He didn't do anything wrong. But what he's showing for our understanding is that instead of them suffering endlessly he is looking at them with compassion that his compassion is re- aroused and he will not carry out his fierce anger he will not devastate the people of Ephraim again yes exile is coming but it will be for a season for out of Egypt will come my son I called my son. So, what do we do? If we know that God doesn't relent, if we know that He doesn't give up, we have to understand that we're going to somehow respond to the call of their Father. Verses 10 and on have a future tense, and it's a powerful one. They will follow the Lord, He will roar like a lion. Have any of you read much of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia? Any of you enjoyed those books as you grew up? I love them. I still love them. And I read at least one of them every year just because they're awesome. And in every single one of them, at one point or another, Aslan roars and everything changes. Every single book, that happens somehow. Or in somewhere, there's this reference to the power of Aslan. Now, Aslan in C.S. Lewis's world was a metaphor for God. And the power of God could not be questioned. The truth of God, the righteousness of God could not be put into question. And in what we see is the first book that's actually not the first book that the magician's nephew is, but we can argue about that later. But in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, Aslan is resurrected. The power of death has no power over him. And when he roars... The people of Narnia arise and they fight with renewed vigor and victory is given. Victory over the oppressive evil that is in their land. The darkness fades and it becomes new. His mercies are new every morning. And we see this powerful picture of the lion roaring. People of God, not a day goes by that God, our lion of Judah, does not roar calling his people back to himself. And he speaks mightily through how we live our lives as his children. You understand that? That if we understand that God is our father and we have been called by the very first two commandments that we are his people called to honor his name and called not to um, profane his name, that we carry his family name with us wherever we go, that therefore we are living in an era where we confer identity onto people as children of God, where we give them security, know that they are loved by God, where we affirm their potential, that they have so much to offer because God made them, loved them, and created them. And their identity is secure in God their father because his authority is true and unwavering and eternal we need that message and as we give that message and as we live that message his children will come trembling out of the west right now you might say but mike you don't understand the relationship i had with my dad how could i possibly think of god loving me and i say this I do not understand how that makes you feel right now. I cannot fix the wounds your dad has cast upon you by the choices that he made. But I can tell you this, standing here as a representative of God, our Father, that God, your Father, says those wounds do not have to define you. Because he goes on and he says, His children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows. I will settle them in their homes. I will bring them home. You may feel far away from God. The wounds may feel too heavy to bear. And right now, God even says to you, let me take them. Let me be the father you've always longed for. Let me care for you as only I can. Because the steadfast love of God never fails. Your earthly parents have failed you. I promise. I don't care how good a parent you are, we fail. Just ask our children, my children. Specifically, go ask Izzy, Isaiah, or Eliza. And they will have a long list of times daddy has failed them this week. That's the reality. The reality of God is he never fails. He never relents. He never gives up. And he never stops calling you back to himself. But he doesn't stop there. He expects us to live in the light of his kindness, to live in the power of his love, to live in the confidence of his identity, to live in the miraculous transformation of his potential that says we can do immeasurably more than we've asked or imagined because God is at work in us. So when you think about the days ahead, I can't help but think of the the hymn that says, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, You remember that? We sing in there that he is merciful and he is mighty. Hosea 11 is all about that. He is merciful. He invites you home. And when the attacks of the evil one come, only one can defeat those. Only one can make your identity secure against the attacks of one that says, you're not good enough. You're certainly not right enough. By the way, who does it say is holy in in Hosea 11? God. It's God that is holy. And he reminds the people of Israel, I am holy. And if he is holy, if his truth is the real truth, because the wonderful truth of God has never changed, and it starts with the command that we're given, love him. Try it. Like, I, I want to sincerely dare you I've been thinking about where we go in the, in the coming months as a church family, and we've been dared by God to step out in faith and see where he's leading us. And, and I told the staff, we had an offsite for our staff the past couple days, and I told the staff, I said, we're going to step out, and so far, all God, actually, uh, Marianne reminded us, all God has shown the light on us is the next step, right there, that's it, that's all we've seen. He hasn't given us the full picture of how the pieces are going to fall. And some of you keep saying, but we have to have this, 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 and this. And God says, no, you have to have me. I dare you to trust him enough to say he doesn't have to fill in every one of your dots and see what he does to your life. He says, I've got you. I'm holding you up to my cheek right now. Am I enough? Because I am merciful and I am mighty and I will not relent, I will not fail, and I will not let go of you. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our God. Do we believe in him? Will we live in him? Will we teach others to do the same? Men, I'm going to ask you to commit to something, and it's going to be inconvenient, and I dare you to be inconvenienced because your family and your relationships will never be the same, if for six weeks you come and you show up and you consider what God's word says about leading by example. Because if God conferred identity, if God affirmed potential, if God did those other things we talked about, if he was the one that provided security and if he was the one that showed there is a moral authority to which to be followed, if we did those things in the workplace, if we did those things in the home, if we did those things in all of our relationships, I promise you this world would change. But men, you got to step up. We have to choose what's most important. Ticking a clock at work isn't most important. Now, I know work demands much of you, especially in this city. But I bet you for six Wednesdays you can sneak out and be here for, by 7.30 p.m. and explore with us how God might shape us. I don't care whether you're a grandfather or not even wanting to date. We want every man at AIC to join us on this journey, to speak the language of God, to bring a little bit of heaven to earth and how we as men interact. And then we're going to invite the women into a similar journey in the days to come. But as we finish, here's the thing. You'll notice in your notes that I asked questions underneath each sub-point so that you can go back and you can think about these things on your own. But what when I, when I ask you right now it goes back to the fact that in Hosea 11, God reminds us He is our Father. So I want to ask you four questions. If He is our Father, are you doing what He says? Are you accepting His authority over your life? For some of you, that might mean getting baptized because He says to do it and you've never done it, so you start there. For others of you, it might mean changing patterns of behavior because you know they're wrong. They're destructive and they're hurtful. But if He is our Father... Are we accepting his authority? Two, do we know we are his? Throughout scripture, he says his people are his and he will not let go of them. In the New Testament, we're told that Satan cannot snatch you from my hands. He is securely holding on to us even when we're trying to wriggle out. He still holds on tightly out of his great love. Out of his great mercy, out of his great compassion and steadfast love, is our identity wrapped in him or in what we think he's supposed to be like? He says, I've got you. You are mine. Do we feel safe? If he's our father, do we feel safe? Or do we have to tell him how much we need to know to feel safe? Do you understand the difference of the question I'm asking there? Comfortable Christianity. If you've studied with Pastor Stan, Chair 2 Christianity says this. I'm going to steal this chair, sorry. God wants me to be happy and comfortable. Ah, Isn't it nice not to do anything and make everyone feel uncomfortable? I'm tired. I've been up a long time. I hope these people figure something out. Or do we understand something far bigger than that. That the security of God moves us to repentance and maturity and growth. That we trust him with every part of our lives. That's all he was inviting Israel to do. Trust him. As the song says, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Comfort says that God will fill in my blanks according to my plan. Ruthless trust says I will trust God knowing that his way is best and that I am secure in his arms and he'll let me know all I need to know. And whenever I say that, I always think of Esther. She had no idea the king was going to respond when she walked in, did she? She knew she deserved to die the minute she dared talk to him. But she did it because her trust was in God more than it was in comfort. And God saved the people yet again through broken people like us. And finally, this is a tough one. Do you believe that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are good enough? That you are good? Righteous, that you are able to do far more than you give yourself credit for, because it is not you who does it. It is the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. And we are we asking him to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Because right now, AIC probably, if we're like most other churches across the world, tend to get really comfortable and in the year to come, we know that we're going to be stretched, and we don't even know what it's going to be like yet. We know hopefully we'll be two AICs come September, October, or sometime. See, I don't even know that. And by the way, my controlness, that frustrates me. But God says, wait, okay. But as we step out, what might he invite you to? Who might he call into your life that you care for, that you show there's a moral authority and an identity that is great and that they need to see and you take a risk of moving beyond just talking to them about the weather and the fact that the Rugby Sevens are in a month. Yes, sorry. And all those things and you actually have hard conversations or what we call big talk. We're gonna talk more about that one in the weeks to come. And we ask people how are they doing. Do we believe that God could use us to change a broken world? Will we trust him with that? God invited the people of Israel time and again to come back. And AIC right now is at a fork in the road. If we go to the left, he might let us stay comfortable. He might let us just continue on and things be okay. But if we go the right way, I don't know what's in store, but I know we will be in the center of God's will and he will use us to transform hearts and lives in ways that we have not yet even been able to see. So as your pastor, I'm saying we're going right because we trust in God, our Father. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and you are our Father. And I know it can be a painful image to think of sometimes when Our earthly parents can disappoint, can frustrate, and confuse, but your love is so much greater. Your love never fails. Your mercy is new every morning, so every day is day one. So Lord, please give us the confidence in our identity in you, to trust in you, to affirm that you are our Father and will go where you send us. Amen.